Thank you, Dr. Grandin, for being will willing to be with us. Okay. And we have a bunch of questions um, from parents. And just before uh, we started, I was talking to you about the fact that parents are so interested in what you have to say about finding your child's strength and how some children are visual, some are more conceptual thinkers. And parents always want some help and guidance, Dr. Grannon, about how they can figure out where their child's strengths are that, so they can start to feed them. Do you have any advice for us? Well, yes, definitely. Definitely. Uh, in my book, The Autistic Brain, I talk about the visual thinkers like me who think in photorealistic pictures. These kids are, oftentimes have a lot of problems when they hit algebra. Then you've got the more mathematical mind, the pattern thinker. These kids are often the little mathematicians, and, but they'll have trouble with reading. Then you also have the word thinkers. Now, a kid's ability usually shows up around third or fourth grade. It can sometimes happen earlier, but third or fourth grade is when it tends to show up. You're not going to see it usually in three-year-olds. You know, visual thinkers often will start drawing and, be, and being really good at art. That's your hint. The little mathematicians are going to be good at math. And with mathematicians, don't hold them back. Don't hold them back and make them do baby math. Let them do more advanced, uh, let them do more advanced math. If a third grader can do a high school math book, let them do it. Word thinkers are often good at writing. Do you think that sometimes parents are trying to look for those clues a little too early? Do you think waiting till third yeah. or fourth grade yeah. is the key? Yeah, they tend to look too early. My ability in art did not really show up until third and fourth grade. Interesting. And so, so before that, your mother probably wouldn't have been able to see how great of a visual mind you have. Well, I can remember Valentine's I made when I was five, and they were just regular little kids' art. They were not anything good. Okay. All right. And now, Dr. Grandin, we are going to have an opportunity to see you on Friday. You are coming to Ventura, California for a Future Horizon uh, event for a conference on, on Friday. And you're speaking about sensory issues. And this is an area where parents have a lot of questions for you about sensory issues and how can we begin to understand, if we are not on the autism spectrum, what sensory issues our child might be having? Well, one of the most common, and I had it, is hearing sensitivity. If you see a child holding his ears uh, or he has a meltdown when he's in a noisy shopping center, that's very likely to be sound sensitivity. And sometimes that can be desensitized if the child can control the dreaded sound, where he can, um, you know, control turning it on, control making it go off. Other kids have visual sensitivity. This is not my problem. But other kids will have this where they can't tolerate fluorescent lights. They can see them flicker. When they get tired, uh, visual images may kind of break up into what one person called Picasso uh, vision. You can get touch sensitivity. I couldn't stand being held. And that can sometimes be desensitized with, um, with deep pressure. And in my book, The Autistic Brain, I have a whole chapter outlining the sensory issues. And the other thing about them, they are extremely variable from sense to sense. You know, one kid will have hearing problems, another kid will have um, uh, uh, visual problems. And is it ever that um, a, a, a variable in terms of what time of day or other things going on, were you able to be touched in some circumstances but not in others? 
Well, the um, sensory problems get worse when kids get tired. But one kid will have a touch sensitivity problem. Another kid will not have it. Mm-hmm. They are extremely variable, and they'll vary in severity, and they're going to vary into which sense is affected. Absolutely. And we're so excited on Friday to hear you speak on this event because it really is unknown territory for a lot of parents. You feel like you're delving in. And, and I, I will tell you honestly, as a parent of a child on the autism spectrum, it's so important. It's like I think that most of us would give anything if for a day we could get inside our kid's head and experience through their nervous system what they were experiencing. Um, it it is, is really an area where a lot of parents just feel completely at sea, Dr. Grandin. Now let's just imagine, a de- for hearing sensitivity, a dentist drill hitting a nerve. Mm. Also, imagine um, your ears are a microphone, and it only has two settings. You can turn it off, or it's on super loud. Mm. It has no intermediate settings. Yeah, I now that my son is is really really verbal, it's fascinating to me that he'll talk about certain sounds and he says, "Oh, I can't be around that sound." And he'll say to me, "It's like my brain is bleeding." Uh if I hear that sound, he said every part of me, he says feels like my brain is bleeding and that my bones are turning to water, which sounds terrible to me. Well, it's it, it's sensory overload. It's like too intense. Yeah. is the problem. And and uh, I can't stand that horrible Dyson blade hand dryer that they have in the bathroom, mm. but I tolerate it now. You know, now if I had to work in an office and listen to that constantly, that, that would not work. But, you know, um, uh, sometimes uh, some of the, the sound sensitivity in little kids can be desensitized somewhat if they control it. One of the real bad sounds is when a microphone squeals. You know, you get the microphone too close to the speaker and the speaker squeals. Well, let the child take the handheld microphone. He walks up to it, and when it just goes, eh, then he can back off. Yeah. He's controlling it. Okay. My fear when I was a child was balloons popping. And and one of the ways I, that could have maybe been desensitized is take a balloon and blow it up really tiny, and then I take a pin and pop it, and it barely makes a sound. Then we blow it up just a little bit bigger, and I take a pin and pop it. Where I am in control, that's the key. Okay. So when you're doing the desensitization, make sure that there is an element that the child is controlling for it. Absolutely. I love All right. That. Let's say the problem is uh, throwing a fit at the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Well, let the child control how much supermarket he's going to tolerate. When he raises his hand up, and there's a special signal, you're going to take him out of the supermarket. I love that. I absolutely love that. I think that's remarkable, which kind of leads me into the next uh, set of questions, Dr. Grannon. We have a lot of parents that are talking about anxiety and how they can help their kids and teenagers, especially, deal with anxiety. Um, Is that a control thing as well? Well, no. There's a problem in some individuals with autism with the fear system just being turned on in overdrive. In fact, my amygdala, the fear center, is larger than normal. Mm. Now, I want to emphasize, not everybody on the spectrum has this. This is where we get into the variability. But us visual thinkers, and I've seen this a lot of non-autistic visual thinkers, too, uh, when we hit puberty, when I hit puberty, that's when the panic attacks started. Mm. It was absolutely horrible. It was sort of like being in a land with a bunch bunch of lions stalking around, and uh, that's the way my nervous system was acting. It was dreadful. And it's now controlled with a low dose of antidepressant drugs. This is where medication can make a difference. 
and the medications you should be using for this is not the antipsychotics, like things like Risperidol, Abilify, and stuff like that. You need to be using some of the old-fashioned drugs, like a little tiny bit of Prozac. I'm taking a little tiny dose of an ancient old drug called Disipramine. And you need to make sure you use very low doses, because too high a dose, you can get agitation and insomnia. And I strongly recommend that people read the chapter in Thinking in Pictures. I have a chapter in there called A Believer in Biochemistry, mm. which describes all of my experiences. And, and to read that chapter in Thinking in Pictures, I want to emphasize there's no new drugs that work any better than the old drugs. Most of the new drugs are what are called patent extenders. They're just me too drugs. The ancient old drugs that you can buy down at Walmart will work just fine. And those are the drugs that are discussed in the chapter in Thinking in Pictures, a believer in biochemistry. Okay, really remarkable. And and you mentioned that if, if it's the wrong dose that you can have insomnia, which then I imagine can exacerbate the problem, and that sometimes you will get people who can be aggressive. And the next set of questions that our parents wanted to know was about those kids that are aggressive. We had one parent in particular who said, my son is 24 and can be very violent. What can I do? What do well, you recommend? Different for kinds of violence. Mm -hmm. Um, there's one type that's a hot and sweaty rage, and it's kind of diffuse, and they tend to be really hot and sweaty. And there's a new book out called Hope for the Violently Aggressive Child that you can get from Future Horizons. And that book um, talks about the use of the old-fashioned uh, blood pressure medicines, things like beta blockers, alpha blockers, clonidine, propanolol, uh, some of these old ancient blood pressure pills which can work really well. That's for the more hot and sweaty rage. Then you can get a rage that's kind of an irritability type of, of, of rage, especially in nonverbal clients, where a very, very low dose of Risperidol, and I mean a really low dose, and you can use the generic. You don't have to use the expensive things. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in also in uh, Thinking in Pictures, I talk about a doctor named Joe Hudgens, who worked with some of the worst clients in terms of violence. Another type of rage thing, it's actually a psychomotor seizure. And when this happens, it's like a switch out of the blue. It's like something flipped the light switch, and they just get set off with it. And it, and it doesn't have any rhyme or reason to it. They could be listening to the music player, just, you know, you know relaxing under a tree, and then they just throw a big fit. And that's a psychomotor epilepsy. Okay, really good information. We have a uh, question from a viewer that uh, wants to know about explaining death and, and helping a, uh, an individual on the spectrum to deal with the feelings and, and all the unknowns that come around death. And I'm imagining that you've experienced the death of a, of a loved one uh, many times throughout your life at this point. Temple, what can you help us to understand? Well, you just have to understand that they're, they're gone. I can remember as a young child, um, uh, it was a teachable moment. This doesn't sound very nice, but it, uh, it really made me understand why I should not run in front of a car. Mm. And there was a squashed squirrel on the pavement. He was very flat. And there was no way the veterinarian was going to put the squirrel back together again. And that's the reason why you don't run in front of cars, because I wouldn't want to be like that squirrel. And... You know, there's a point where, you know, the person's gone. You know, this is where some people, a religious faith is really, you know, 
really you know helps them out uh you know it's um they're gone yeah have you do you feel like you've experienced the grief of loss in your life no well, i've definitely had things where i've you know grieved about yeah i uh, you know it, it's uh they're gone and and i uh, you know, I can remember when Ann died, I was, you know, really upset about that. that Ann is with the aunt out at the ranch. Mm -hmm. And and what? Do you, how long did it take you to get to a point where you felt better? And was there anything that helped you to get over it? Well, I kind of wanted to remember them more like how they were alive, mm -hmm. not what she looked like when she was almost dead. Mm -hmm. I can remember when she, she was all like really old looking and terrible looking and shriveled up looking. I like to remember, I've got this one picture that I show in my cattle handling talk of Anne standing in the middle of one of my corral systems, and I'd rather remember that, and I actually show that picture in my class. That's a good and thing. And in that picture. That's a good thing to think of, how to remember them the way yeah. when when they were in their prime and remarkably happy. Okay. Well, my she was very, very happy, and she was standing in the middle of one of my very early corral system designs. Uh, really remarkable. So I, I also have a bunch of parents who are wanting to know, you know, the autism community seems to be very um, fractured at the moment. Like there are a bunch of different camps of people saying, we want you to use these words. We want to we want to refer to autism. Um, All right. Well, refer to the camps. Uh, just just label one, two, three of whatever. And I'm going to write down what they Okay, so it seems like there are there are a group of individuals who are on the autism spectrum who are offended a lot of the times when people say, well, we're trying to um, overcome uh, things having to do with autism. They feel like we've negatively, uh, we've attached negativity to the term autism and they feel like there are a lot of great things with autism and that when, for instance, um, up north, they, they said a thing about how they wanted to um, get rid of autism in our lifetime. And that, All right, that okay, hurts their let's, feelings. Let's simplify this. In other okay. words, these are people on the spectrum yeah. that are against the idea of curing autism. Yeah, or or even the language around that. Yeah. All right. Then okay, then so you gonna, have okay, um, then the next group. The next group is parents who um, think of autism as something that they have to help their child overcome, um, that they need to work on, and um, and that there is hope for their child to overcome the more disabling aspects of autism. They're not looking. Oh, how uh, you define overcome. I yeah. consider, you know, overcoming, um, uh, getting a good job that you like and supporting yourself. Yeah. You know, going to college, those would be things that would be, uh, I would consider, you know, overcoming it. You're still autistic. Right. I don't uh, want to be like these guys that are sitting at home playing video games all day. Right. That's not a, a successful outcome. Right. Um, and then it seems like there's a third group of parents who believe that their children have been diagnosed with autism and, and their children are on the more severe end and they, they don't have a whole lot of hope for their child making any progress. Um, and they view autism as a tragedy. Uh, well, all right. Let's all right. Okay. Let's just address these okay. one at a time. We've got three groups here. Um, now, I have said in many of my talks. Let's talk about group one. Yeah. These are the people on the spectrum. And I have said in many of my talks that if we were to eliminate all autism genetics, you better like your computer really well because there's not going to be any more computer engineers to build you a new one. 
because if you got rid of all the autism genetics, you'd be getting rid of an awful lot of creativity because a little bit of the trait can give some advantages like mathematical thinking, visual thinking, some of these sorts of things. Yes. And, and uh, uh, you know, they, now when it comes to, you know, the, no, so totally getting rid of autism genetics, I, mean, I completely am against that. But on the other hand, I want people to be successful. So how do I define success? Getting out in the workforce and supporting yourself, uh, preferably in a job you're going to like. I've gone out to Silicon Valley, and there's undiagnosed Asperger's people out there. They're having a great time. Free food, pastel bikes to ride around on. <laughs> and then there is... Uh, Another group uh, that's gotten addicted to video games and has become a video game recluse sitting at home, that's not a successful outcome. Yeah. And I don't think they're happy. And, and some of these are going to need a little bit of medication to cut the anxiety. And, and one of the things that helped make me be successful was when I was a teenager, I was not allowed to become a recluse in my room. They let me work in the horse barn. They let me mess around and not study. But being a recluse in my room, that was where I was not allowed to do that. I had to be out doing things. And when I didn't want to go to Friday night movie night, they gave me a choice, projectionist or sit in the audience. All right, let's talk about group two, parents that want to help their child overcome. Okay, so this group of parents uh, tends to be on the, the, the kids that are less severe. In other words, you do the early intervention. You've got the child talking. Yes, they'd like to have their child do well in school. Mm-hmm. Maybe have the child go to college. Um. I'm seeing a a lot of kids having a lot of trouble with the school system because I'd estimate that maybe 20% of um, individuals on the spectrum uh, that are, you know, fully verbal would be really good at one of the skilled trades. And there's a zillion jobs out there that are really fun jobs. Uh, Some of the best parts of my life was working in construction. I just loved it. And and no, you're not going to make the autism go away, but you've got to teach social skills. I had social skills pounded into me. I mean, I had to be a little party host when I was young. And I'm seeing too many kids who don't know how to shake hands. Uh, they're too shouldered. I hate it at a meeting when the mom comes up and does all the talking for their child, and the child doesn't do any of the talking. The child's got to learn to do the talking. And I want people to be successful because what happens is I, I'm seeing... Uh, uh, when I go to a meatpacking plant or I go to some technical thing, I am seeing that same geeky kid that doesn't have the label, and he's doing good. Now, where an autism label in somebody that's got a good job does good is in their relationships. And that's why I did my book, um, Different Not Less, 14 Old Aspies that made it in the workplace but had trouble with their relationships. And, and that can be really helpful. Um, you know, it defi- it, 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 you're not going to make them normal, but it defines how you call overcome. Yeah. Uh, somebody that sits in a room for eight hours a day playing video games and is on Social Security check, that's not a good outcome. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, I'm seeing too many kids going down that route. All right, now we get into this third group where you've got parents with extremely severe autism. And the child is not making progress. Mm-hmm. And, and um, they've got all kinds of problems with the kid. You're not able to do any normal activities. I can remember one time um, I, I did a talk at a big church down in Texas. And, and they had a respite night where the parents could uh, bring in their really severely, the kind of kids that you cannot 
do normal activities with. You cannot go to a restaurant with them. You cannot go to a shopping center. You cannot do a movie. You can't do church. You can't do just normal events. And they describe this one poor family that put the air conditioning on in their car after they dropped the kid off and just lay there in the car for four hours playing the stereo. Mm. They were just completely strung out. You see, this is the problem we have with autism. It's such a big spectrum. You're going from Silicon Valley to a child that may have epilepsy, multiple medical problems on top of the autism that is extremely handicapped and they cannot do any, any normal stuff at all. Yeah, and, and I wonder, Dr. Grandin, if part of the issue is that it's hard to explain that to our legislators. I think that a lot of people in office don't understand that autism is such a huge spectrum that you can be talking about the person who's in Silicon Valley making a good living and the person who is not able to go and eat at a restaurant. I think that's hard for our legislators well, to understand. I think it's hard, and I think the DSM-5, getting rid of Asperger's, was a mistake. Okay. Because from the standpoint of service, providing services, uh, there's a big difference between the fully verbal kids and the ones that are very, very severe. They yeah. need a totally different kind of service. And the thing from a service provider standpoint, having the category of significant speech delay and maybe never developing speech as opposed to no speech delay, um, or at least there's no speech delay that anybody notices from a prov service provider standpoint actually makes a lot of sense. Do you, uh, do you like, though, that in the new DSM-5 that it has designations of, that, are, that are about being severely affected, being more moderately affected? Do, does yeah, that that's part good. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. That makes sense. But then you've got to define those categories. I agree. Now, I would put in the severely affected that they remain, you know, they don't get speech. Yeah. You know, that would be severely affected. Now, when I was three, I had no speech. Mm. But when I got into very good early intervention, I, I managed to... Um, managed to get speech. And we had the opportunity a week ago today that for the first time we were able to talk to your mom on the show. And it okay. was a very it was a very exciting thing. And it was uh, very thrilling for me to have an opportunity to talk with her. I, and she talked about some of that early speech that you got and how amazing those women were who taught you at a time when women didn't have a lot of career choices, uh, how they were really pioneers. It was really exciting to hear well, her they talk were. about and, that. And Miss Reynolds, my speech teacher, uh, she basically did ABA. I mean, Miss Reynolds is the inventor of ABA. She was doing it in her basement on me, you know, back in uh, like 19, uh, 1949. I find that really remarkable, Temple. That, that gives me so much hope. Uh, we, uh, we have to let you go because we promised that we wouldn't keep you very long and we have to start our live show. But we are going to come and see you on Friday. And I'm thinking of bringing my 10-year-old my, uh, son to meet you as well on Friday. We think, okay. we think that this is a remarkable event. Again, we want to talk about it. it's the Future Horizons conference that you're going to be speaking there. And if people want to register to go to that, it's in Ventura, California, that they can go to fhautism.com and they can register for that. And you do these conferences frequently around the country for yeah, uh, future I, I do I do quite a few conferences yes I do and so and they can find out more information about that at future horizon fhautism.com you can yes. see all the different places where you can go and see dr. Grandin speak we'll look forward to seeing you on Friday dr. Grandin all right thank you so much